part of the problem is that a lot of the general Australian population are not particularly familiar with the incredible work that ACR does overseas and there's a lack of understanding of you know, the importance of building the capability of agricultural sectors across the world. Hi, my name is Jan Wyshnevsky and this is The Strife, a podcast thinking about issues in Australia with the long term in mind. If you're familiar with the voice that appeared in the intro, you've probably listened to the last episode. That was Verity Morgan Schmidt, CEO of Australian Farmers for Climate Action. If you haven't heard the episode, I recommend you do. It ties in nicely with what we'll discuss today. So Verity was giving ACR a bit of a plug there, and for good reason. So that's the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, a statutory authority that supports Australian scientists in working on projects to develop the agricultural practices of other countries in our region. I'm going to speak to the CEO of ACR, Andrew Campbell, and I'll ask him about the type of projects they're working on right now and how they're evolving, but also the benefits of sharing Australia's expertise with our partner countries. Okay, here we go. Hi Andrew, how are you going? Uh, good, thanks. Great. Thanks for uh, joining me for a chat. What is your background uh, as a scientist and how did you find yourself as CEO of the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research? I don't really see myself as a scientist, more as an all-rounder. Um, I grew up on a farm, which I was, I'm the fifth generation in the family and I'm still managing that farm in Western Victoria and that that grounds a lot of what I do. Uh, I started out uh, my professional career as a forester and then moved into agricultural extension. I was involved in the development of land care in Australia as Australia's first national land care facilitator. Yep. And then uh, I did postgraduate study in Holland and France uh, on management of agricultural knowledge systems and came back to Australia and worked in the Federal Environment Department um, in charge of the bush care program mm-hmm. and then uh, was successful in gaining the job as CEO of uh, Land and Water Australia, which is one of the rural R&D corporations. And that's when my career in sort of research management and brokering commenced in 2000. And after seven years at Land and Water Australia, I left to start my own consultancy business, um, Triple Helix Consulting. And after four years as a consultant, uh, I became an academic for the first time at Charles Darwin University, heading up a new research institute for the environment and livelihoods. But in that role, I started to develop partnerships in um, eastern Indonesia and Timor-Leste and up into the Mekong countries and, and became interested in um, in the broader challenges of the region. And so when the job was advertised as CEO of ACR, uh, one, I was keen to get back to Canberra. Two, uh, I was keen to become a, uh, to be a CEO again. Mm-hmm. And three, uh, this sort of ticked all the boxes in terms of uh, working internationally, leading a small statutory agency with an important mandate, and getting back into the research management world. So, given that background, uh, what does your work entail as CEO? Well. I, you know, I see the key research leadership role at, at uh, ACR is, is undertaken by our 10 research program managers. Yeah. 
And then we have a small executive of uh, five people, uh, a chief scientist and three general managers and a chief finance officer. And that's the leadership team. Uh, and I guess my role is to try and make sure they've got the resources and to do what they need to do and to ensure that collectively we come up with a strategic direction for the agency. And in particular, the role of a CEO of a statutory body is I report to the Foreign Minister of Australia. So ensuring that what we're doing is uh, consistent with government policy and that we're managing the relationship with the minister's office and the minister mm-hmm. and with our big sister agency, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. So a lot of what I do is stakeholder uh, relationship management and representing the agency in Australia and overseas. So you mentioned working um, under the Foreign Affairs Ministry and earlier this year, Australia's uh, now former Minister for Foreign Affairs, Julie Bishop, launched uh, your centre's 10-year strategy for 2018 to 2027. What direction does this provide the agency? Yeah, I think this is a very significant development for ACR and, and Julie Bishop has a very um, deep and, and broad knowledge of uh, ACR's work and the importance of ACR's work as part of Australia's what's now known as soft power uh, region. And the new strategy, uh, one, uh, I thought it was important for us to frame it around a 10-year approach because the issues we're tackling are not going to be fixed in 18 months or three years or five years. They demand long-term approaches and stability and continuity. And so I thought it was important for us to put some markers down around these big issues. Mm -hmm. The new strategy represents a broadening of focus. Traditionally, ACR has always been focused on poverty reduction and improving food security, particularly for smallholder farmers across our region. But this new strategy recognises that it's no longer good enough for agricultural research to just focus on increasing yields. Mm -hmm. It's still very important, but it's not sufficient. We now need to think about nutrition at a societal scale, and we need to think about sustainability. Um, We have to, in some cases, radically improve water use efficiency, nutrient use efficiency, and our use of energy in agriculture. And we have to do all of that in more difficult climatic conditions with more more volatility in the climate, more extreme events. And the overarching need over over time to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So nutrition, climate, water, managing natural resources, they're as important these days for us as poverty reduction and improving agricultural production and as well as those what objectives we've got a couple of how objectives that are mm-hmm. consistent with Australian government policy and so they're important important objectives for ACR and they are the empowerment of women and girls yep. and working with the private sector where, um, where appropriate and usually that means going further along the value chain rather than just focusing on farms. So that uh, 10-year strategy uh, is framed around six overarching objectives. Mm-hmm. It streamlines our program somewhat from 13 down to 10 to address those objectives. Okay. And it 
also allocates more resources into enabling ACR to partner and co-invest with development partners as we're doing with DFAT and also with the Canadian International Development Research Centre and the Syngenta um, Foundation. Uh, we'd like to do more of those sorts of partnerships mm -hmm. where we co-invest strategically, particularly against those those new and uh, objectives of nutrition and climate and working with the private sector. Okay, what are the benefits of partnerships like that, particularly working with the with the private sector? A crucial benefit is particularly where we're joined up with a development partner or a scale out partner. Mm -hmm is that these partners are better able than us to take our research uh, findings to scale and to ensure that they reach tens of thousands more farmers than the original research project is able to. But also, if you've got a genuine partnership with people who are further along the value chain, often that instills a discipline back into the research in the first place to make sure we are generating all the different types of information that we need in order to improve uh, a whole value chain from from the policy end. I saw a, a comment from a conference in Africa the other day that yeah. you don't improve a chain by pushing it at one end, you do it by pulling it from the other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a value chain work to be effective needs to start from the consumer and and from the market and then and work back from there. And that's where part – that's not uh, – our normal comfort zone. So yep. work partners for whom that's their daily bread or daily operating world uh, is a very valuable thing for us. And that's been recognised, um, the benefits of that in, in the 10-year strategy. Yes. And supported. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So you mentioned the obvious challenges of working in the future and at the moment with harsher climatic conditions that I suppose could alter the conditions we base our practices on, our agricultural practices. From what you've seen during your travels, are you confident that we'll be able to adapt to these challenges in the countries within our region? ACR works across more than 30 countries from East Africa to the Pacific, mm -hmm. and every single one of those countries has climate change as either priority one, two or three in our discussions with them as to what our research priorities are. Many of them are finding that their seasons are not as reliable as they used to be. Yeah. They don't necessarily get as much rain in the wet in the wet season or it doesn't occur at the right time and they now get awkward rain in the dry season, which they didn't used to get. And that makes things much more difficult for their farming systems and mm -hmm. their livelihood strategies. And that's that's in addition to getting whacked by big events, uh, floods or droughts or typhoons and cyclones and so on. So it's a bit of an academic question whether we think we'll succeed or not. We have to do the best we can and try very hard and hope that that is sufficient. Mm -hmm. I would uh, suggest that at the moment, globally, we're under-investing in research on this issue. Okay. And so that's that's not a good sign. Uh, but the countries that we're working in are taking it extremely seriously and and are putting a lot of emphasis on getting better climate adaptation research, yep. better predictive tools, better analytical tools and um, and better agronomic options. It's all very well to know that mm -hmm. a drought might be coming, uh, but 
you've got to be able to answer the so what question. So what do the farmers do about it? Do they grow something differently, grow it in a different way or get income off farm or move? There's, There's a whole bunch of different options and they're not very well developed in a lot of the places that we work in. Perhaps you could uh, provide some examples of some research or programs that you have come across that do look uh, promising or particularly innovative. Sure. We're doing research in Myanmar where traditionally people have run a double cropping system where they they manage to get in two crops during the the rainy season. But in recent years, the, the probability of getting a successful second crop has become much lower there's not necessarily enough soil moisture to get a good second crop. So we're looking at research that ensures that they get a really good first crop that's sufficient to set them up for the year and then the second crop becomes a bonus rather than something they automatically do and helping them with the decision-making about whether or not there's sufficient soil moisture to do a second crop in a given year. Which you're better off not planting Mm -hmm. than planting a crop that fails. And so that's just one small example. Yeah. Uh, again, in um, in the Iowati Delta in Myanmar, in rice fish systems where mm-hmm. we've, we're showing farmers that they can increase their rice production by setting aside some area of the paddy that doesn't get planted and has deeper water in it in which they raise fish. And the fish eat the bugs that eat the rice. And so despite losing some area, they they actually get better rice production overall. Uh, but they get an additional product, which is these uh, little fish that they dry using uh, solar-powered um, drying tunnels, uh, polytunnels. And so they get a value-added product of little dried fish that are protein-rich, mm-hmm. that provide a new cash crop that you can sell on the side of the road or send to the market, and that improve the nutrition levels in the local community. And it's sort of thinking in a more integrated way around nutrition and resilience that leads you into these new sorts of systems. We've got another innovative project in the slums of Nairobi where we're working with a German-French environmental engineering firm who've invented a new composting toilet. They've installed those toilets in, um, in the slums of Nairobi and the human waste is collected each day and it's used to grow black soldier flies. Mm-hmm. And the larvae of these black soldier flies increase their biomass by a factor of about 100 every three weeks, bearing in mind that Nairobi's right on the equator and, and to have just the right conditions. So in three weeks, uh, you get these big uh, fat white larvae or maggots. Mm-hmm. They then boil and air dry and, and sun dry. And finishes up looking like um, a bit like rice, I guess. Yeah. That gets fed to village chickens, and the chickens radically improve their laying performance. They lay for longer, their eggs are much higher in necessary micronutrients, and they provide so that improves um, food security down at a village level. Uh, the system occupies about one hectare, the processing facilities. Uh, it uses no external inputs of water. Or energy, the organic waste, the pupae of the larvae are composted and sold as organic waste, mm-hmm. and the residue of that is is um, turned into green energy and fed back into the grid. So the system is water positive, energy positive, and nutrient positive, and it improves sanitation in the slums. Mm-hmm. So this is the sort of integrated 
uh, project that we need to be moving towards rather than just growing the traditional staple crops and trying to improve yields out in the out in the paddock we need to think about these emerging cities across the world where most of the people now live in cities and particularly the peri-urban areas around cities and think about what sort of food systems are we going to need in these areas to improve overall food security. So I'm interested in um, Australian scientists' roles in uh, these type of projects. How exactly does the agency uh, support scientists from Australia um, in getting involved? And I guess how is the expertise developed in Australia relevant to these countries? Well, Australia, uh, the island continent, is the only OECD country that has a significant chunk of its landmass in the tropics. Mm-hmm. And as people know well, uh, we also have large areas of desert and we have everything in between. So Australia has agroecological zones that span across a big range of climate mm-hmm. and quite often with rather poor soils. And Australia has the most variable climate in the world of any inhabited continent. So even before man-made climate change, the Australian continent had extremely variable climates. And so our agriculture from day one has had to cope with droughts and floods and fires and not getting any rain in the, in the, in the growing season or getting too much and so on. Mm -hmm. Also, it's a blessing in disguise, but Australian agriculture's lack of subsidies means that many of the solutions that we have developed in Australia to handle tough climates and poor soils yeah. uh, are quite applicable in developing countries because they don't they don't depend on large external subsidies to survive. Whereas a lot of agriculture in the US, in Japan, in Europe, in Korea, and so on is heavily subsidised, and so the solutions develop or Israel. Solutions developed in those contexts can't be easily implemented in a in a poor country. Okay. Well, and and sorry, with our science. Yeah, sure. So, Australian agriculture, despite that challenging context, yeah, has enjoyed total factor productivity increases of around three percent for decade after decade, and it's done that because we have a very significant investment in agricultural research and development. And we have a very good system for ensuring that research gets taken up in industry through the rural R&D corporations and and so on. So Australian ag science is one of Australia's strategic strengths, in my view. In fact, it's a a strategic national asset that we we don't celebrate enough. And many of the scientists who work on ACR projects Mm -hmm. say to me, look, that ACR project was a highlight of my career. I learned so much yep. applying my work in a, in a much more difficult context in a, in a low-income country. I learned so much that I can then apply back in Australia and it's really helped me become a much better scientist. And so we think that ACR projects play a really important role in the Australian innovation system, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if we can get scientists involved in these projects early in their career it often is a career defining moment for them whether or not they finish up in international research they they look back on that as something that from which they learnt an enormous amount in a short amount of time acr is funded out of australia's overseas development assistance budget the oda budget Mm -hmm. 
we invest around 2.5% of the aid budget and DFAT looks after the other 97.5%. And the the purpose of of that investment is for us to help the countries in our region to improve their own food security, to do it sustainably and to better uh, nourish their populations and to improve their livelihoods. And we we have a business model that applies Australian science and partnerships with Australian science organisations to help them do that. But we often find that while it's not the primary purpose of the investment, there are co-benefits that flow back to Australia from this work. Okay. So, for example, uh, in Africa, we were working in village chickens and developed a very low-cost vaccine for uh, Sydney University scientists for Newcastle disease. Mm-hmm. That became incredibly useful when Australia got new, was hit with Newcastle disease. Mm-hmm. ACR-funded scientists working in bananas uh, in the Philippines on, on Panama disease in bananas were able to recognise it very quickly on just one farm in North Queensland and that farm was able to be quarantined before it hit the rest of the industry. If they hadn't been working on the ACR project, they wouldn't have recognised the, the, the symptoms so quickly and it most likely would have caused much a much bigger problem for the Australian mm-hmm. industry. ACR-funded scientists have been working with mangoes in Fiji and with the innovative farmers there, they've developed a, a new trellising system mm-hmm. that means the mangoes are much less likely to blow over in a cyclone. That trellising system is now being adopted by mangrove growers in North Queensland. So there are a whole bunch of these these examples. We've had a long-time partnership with China uh, in citrus, and just recently seven new citrus rootstocks were introduced into the Australian market from Chinese. They were Chinese um, rootstocks. Yeah. Now, it's the rootstock that gives you your drought tolerance and your uh, heat tolerance and stress tolerance in, in citrus. Mm. And... They take a long time to develop new ones. And so being able to get seven new ones from a partnership with China has been a fantastic outcome for the Australian industry. And uh, there are many other examples here of, of how the Australian industry benefits enormously from us helping their counterparts overseas. Yeah. And in fact, usually when we, uh, whenever Australian farmers are exposed to this work, they think we should be doing a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's obviously a case of widening our expertise pool by coming into contact where with international actors. It seems to make sense. Well, yeah, I, I was in the Northern Territory for six years and the, the NT mango growers, you know, initially thought, well, what are you guys doing working in, um, in the Philippines with mm. mangoes? Aren't, aren't you helping our competitors? And then mm. after being in contact with that work, they realized, well, hang on. We sell our mangoes for $3 each and they sell theirs for $3 a tonne. We're not in the same markets at all. We're not competing with each other at all. But they do some very interesting stuff in the Philippines around how they can ensure that mangoes are flowering over a much longer period and producing fruit over a much longer period. And they're things that we can learn from and that would enormously benefit the industry in the Northern Territory and North Queensland. So um, that's just a a simple example of, of... how this works in our in Australia's longer-term interests. But, I mean, it is set within the context of, of foreign aid and the primary purpose is to help, in particular, smallholder farmers in low-income countries in our region. Yeah. 
Well, thank you uh, very much for taking the time to have a chat today, Andrew. No worries, Jan. Andrew Campbell there, CEO of the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. It was great to hear about some of the awesome work Aussie scientists are doing overseas. To finish the episode, we'll hear from Sydney Project Suix with the song Pacific Dreamer. Its big sound matches nicely with the big ideas Andrew was just talking about. And just a reminder, you can follow The Strife on SoundCloud and Twitter, or even subscribe on iTunes. Thanks everyone. See ya.